Hello, everybody. I'm Phil Margavichus, and welcome to another episode of Funding MedTech brought to you by Project MedTech. Funding MedTech is an interview-style podcast focused on exploring ways to fund MedTech innovation. You will be hearing from all different kinds of funding vehicles and the how, why, and what they invest. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website at www.projectmedtech.com and follow us on LinkedIn. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Sleeman & Lund. Sleeman & Lund is a leading intellectual property boutique specializing in medical devices. They've become a trusted partner for inventors, startups, and industry giants alike. Founded by seasoned attorneys with decades of experience, Sleeman & Lund combines experience with innovation. When it comes to protecting your groundbreaking medical device inventions, Sleeman & Lund stands at the forefront, offering expert legal counsel and strategic guidance that can make all the difference. Whether you're a passionate inventor with a game-changing idea or a company seeking to safeguard your innovations, Sleeman & Lund has the expertise and experience you need to navigate the complex world of medical device patents. In this episode, Kwame Ulmer at Wavemaker 360 Health and Rich Mazzola discuss fund size, type, investment thesis, check size, and other details of Wavemaker 360 Health. Right, today I'm joined by Kwame over at uh, Wavemaker 360. Kwame, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. So, so Kwame, uh, would love to you know get your background, how you got into investment, investing in startups, but also investing in medtech startups specifically, and, and where that journey started, where it's taking you today. Believe it or not, you could honestly say it was a 21-year journey in total. It started, I got exposed to medical devices uh, as a regulator, I worked with the FDA for 12 years, uh, but I was really interested after having evaluated hundreds of medical device applications in being part of a team to build a product. I joined as a vice president of regulatory and quality at a medical device company, did that for about three and a half years. Uh, and the remainder of my time was spent um, working with early stage companies, helping them navigate the FDA. But along that journey, two major touch points, I got exposed to a well-known program called Kaufman Fellows. And that's when I really thought there was an organized, structured way that I could enter into VC. And I simultaneously went back to my alma mater for business school, and I had to choose between that fellowship program and business school. I opted for business school, but the seed was planted. Fast forward, I started angel investing in LA. And around that same time, Wavemaker was raising fund one and they wanted someone with a medical device background and someone who could also help them raise fund one. I checked both of those boxes. So it was uh, timing. And by that time I had about 15 years in the industry and government. So my my skill set was complimentary. And uh, the rest is history. (laughs) <laughs> Beautiful. And j- just out of curiosity, as an FDA regulator, were you focused more on 510Ks, de novos, PMA products? Uh, so after 12 years, 
I couldn't help but have been exposed to everything. And it was proportional mm-hmm. because as you probably know, PMAs are the most unique and rarest application type. So I probably did five to 10 of those over my career, but probably have touched and evaluated over a hundred, couple hundred 510Ks. And then there are IDEs and 513Gs and even eyeball applications for orphan devices. Um, so I've, I've been fortunate enough to see it all. Yeah. We were wealth of knowledge there then at a minimum, right? So if VC never worked out, you could always go back into uh, writing another one of those. <laughs> From your lips to God's ears. Yep. Yeah, there you go. So uh, talk to me about, uh, so I, you, you mentioned LA. Are you out in California as well? I am in uh, Los Angeles. Our our uh, fund is headquartered in beautiful Pasadena, California. And if you're familiar, familiar with Southern California, it is essentially a suburb of Los Angeles and it's where all the railroad barons would vacation in beautiful Pasadena, mm. California. There you go. Thus the LPs were, were born, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> there you go. So, so talk to me about Wavemaker. So, uh, you, you mentioned fund one, but are you on fund two, three now at this well, point? Thanks. Yeah, we are on fund two. We're investing out of fund two. All the money has been fully deployed out of fund one. And uh, we're talking to individuals about a third fund, but we're actively investing out of fund two. Um, and it is our LP base is comprised of mainly um, high net worth individuals who have uh, a connection to healthcare, either as a, on the provider side, the payer side. And we also have some strategic investors like Amgen who uh, have joined us for this journey. Uh, we're a classic two and 20 fund. We are not an evergreen fund. So we uh, just like startups have to show a return. We have to show a return for our LPs. And that's what we're uh, poised to do. Now, we've interviewed a few folks that are in the process of raising uh, a new fund. And I always thought it was interesting because it gives an entrepreneur the perspective of a VC that's going through the same. You're, you're, everybody's raising money, right? So uh, size of fund one, what was that size originally? It was approximately $11 million AUM. Okay. And then how's fund, how was fund two raise? Similar size or a little uh, bit bigger? It got bigger. Uh, total AUM is $84 uh, million. So uh, whatever 84 minus 11 is, I don't have my calculator. Believe it or not, I can do math, but uh, <laughs> whatever that delta is. The point, uh, I guess the most um, confidence inspiring part of it is and this is obviously what you want for funds. Well, generally speaking, people want fund the second fund to be bigger, um, and we were able to three x the, the fund size. Um, so that was a, a blessing. Mm-hmm. I always uh, we interviewed Bill Trainer on here, and he always would say the ability to raise a larger fund and the speed in which you're able to do it is a report card on the entire investment team's you know progress on the first fund. And so, congrats to that. And so, uh, it sounds like exciting on fund three, and that's just kicking off. Are you able to share some of those details? We don't have, uh, unfortunately, we won't have a lot to share other than I would say raising for a fund has many analogs to raising for your startup. And just to characterize the number of conversations we had to raise our previous funds was north of 500. So it's, it's hard on the boulevard all around. You know, I'm, I'm using a little colloquial language just to try and relate to your audience that we feel the same pain. We get the same number of no's, uh, relatively speaking. And we are 
on a very similar journey that a startup is in terms of raising capital. And in this environment, we're feeling some of the same pressures. Mm-hmm. Yep. I always like the, um, the antidote Bezos was asked, uh, you know, how is it raising capital in your first couple of years? And he goes to raise a, my first million dollars. I had to speak to a hundred people. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, even, even Amazon's got to go through that, man. That's, you know, and I, that, that's the metric I heard. And then I started pe- hearing people who said, no, no, no. I've re- I've talked to hundreds of people and either, I think both of them are very much, uh, realistic, rich, and you have to get your head on straight for it. And it's not even mm-hmm. thick skinned, properly interpreting and knowing that this is part of the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we're going to focus, I guess, the, the discussion around fund two, but I'm also going to ask kind of fund three, are you still thinking the same way in terms of fund three? And if there's any, if you can share anything on fund three, that'd be great. But for fund two, you know, let's talk um, check size. What are you aiming to deploy if it's a good investment? Uh, you know, how are you scouting those opportunities, stage, style, uh, FDA clearance pathway, whatever it might be? Right. So we will invest broadly across healthcare with the exception of biotech and, and pharma, so that leaves a lot of opportunities in platforms, marketplaces. But the area where I work and a couple other partners in the fund work is in traditional medical devices and diagnostics and to some extent digital health. Our minimum check is 500K, maximum check is 1 million. And we have a two check strategy where we were reserved for right now we're C to Series A. And we talked a little bit about or mentioned Fund 3. For fund two, generally speaking, we want to be a capital partner one year, no more than a year, but ideally less than six months to being in market. So for the world I live in, 510K clearance has likely been submitted, or if you're de novo, you're wrapping up the clinical study and you're about to submit the de novo, or you need a bridge to get through the de novo. Uh, we have invested in 510K devices primarily. We've even invested in companies that were unregulated and then subsequently, the next version of their software, I think Iterative Scopes is a good example, has been regulated by the FDA. doesn't have to be, but for Fund 3, we are considering investing at Series A. And we think that will unlock more opportunities to invest in uh, companies that have larger clinical, medical device companies with larger clinical, clinical trials. I'm not sure if we will... Depending on the size of Fund 3, I don't know if we will have the capital that will be patient enough to participate in PMA devices, but I think we that aperture is open, possibly. Um, yeah, you're smiling, but you know, as you know, most of the opportunities and most of the products that get to market are 510K and de novo, and we'll be able to invest in more of those, particularly for Fund 3. Last thing I'll say is we're developed, we've developed a theme more around precision health. The best example of that is we invested in a company called Carl's Med, based in Carlsbad, Pennsylvania. Um, they uh, finished, I believe, uh, we invested at Seed, and we co-invested with the lead whose trigger was a 510K clearance. And Carl's Med was also a breakthrough, and it's AI-powered software to produce 3D-printed spinal devices. So a unique spin on a very robust and mature subsector. Yeah. You know, when we work with companies early stage and we're talking about that cash curve, right? So we're trying to figure out where the major milestones are to basically break up the rounds so that we can say, Hey, there's a 
a spike in valuation, that's a good time to raise some capital. And you're hitting those, right? You, you guys are really in seed to series A, that's a tough window because you're really arguing around a lot of clinical work, a lot of development work, design freeze, FDA submission, clearance, commercialization ramp up, right? That's kind of the, the bulk of the work in a startup, I would say, is in that range you guys are really focused on. So obviously there's that trifecta you just mentioned as an example, but is there one or two major things um, you mentioned clinical studies being complete. You mentioned clearance or at least submission along the way to clearance. Um, is there an absolute slam dunk for you um, where it comes to one of those? You're like, I'm going to take a look at that because of X has been achieved. Well, the old cliche of team is important. Sometimes, actually, I'll be candid. <laughs> Within about five minutes, I can tell if I'm talking to a gray beard. It is not physical, but you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, this mm-hmm. done it a couple times before. Uh, and, you know, people can put a picture and a logo, some logos on a deck and say, oh, this person had a couple exits. But you can immediately tell when someone's really been there and done that before. And I I got that strong sense when I met with the leadership at Carl's Med. That's one. And then uh, sometimes there are about a constellation of three things that almost make it a no brainer. One is. um a very clear regulatory path. The second is some early, a very clear plan to adoption. My colleague, Dr. Monica Jane is really big on that. And then a kiss and cousin to adoption is reimbursement, some really clear, well thought out reimbursement. Um, I would say if those things are really fleshed out, team regulatory reimbursement and adoption, Ah, the last thing that is a sweetener, icing on the cake. But we've been talking to companies who either have a strategic on the cap table or strategic would join a cap table. And then we have to dig into the nature of that. You know, are they going to be a channel partner in addition to providing capital? Are they going to take a board seat? But generally speaking, a strategic involved in med tech, those are probably the the top four, four, four or five factors. Yeah, no, fantastic. And it sounds like, you know, with Carlsbad as the example, it, it sounds like you're geographically, you're not landlocked within a certain region of the United States. So you invest broadly across the continental US. Absolutely. We have a partner based in, partially based in the UK. So we've invested in several UK based companies, Canadian based companies. Uh, uh, I happen to interact regularly with companies based in Korea. Um, and, but, uh, the main thing is like most funds based in the U.S., we can best support and we only invest when there's a clear U.S. go to market is the next market they're going to enter. So you're staying away from the uh, the MDR stuff over there, huh? Yeah. You know, um, I'm based in L.A. and I'm fortunate enough to have done some research with Dr. Jennifer McKinney. We talked to over 100 med tech companies and they all said um, U.S. is the preferred market to enter first. Yeah. So we believe it. Well- yeah. And when I was doing some research on, you know, we look at syndicated data all the time to figure out market, uh, market fit, market size um, for these early stage companies. And the rule of thumb is the generic rule of thumb is that if you take the U.S. market, take 60 percent of that. And that's your European, U.K. size market, more or less, without kind of looking at the details. But that's generally kind of close to it. So, yeah, size wise, obviously, it makes sense for if you're trying to be broadly adopted. So, um you know, moving into kind of a Goldilocks zone, so investment vehicles, uh, sounds like price rounds is a good fit based on size checks, but you know, convertibles. Yeah, we will invest in convertible notes. We like, uh, we very, very, very much like a cap on the note. 
to be really tactical. Um, and we are not interested and we are swayed entirely by bargain basement in terms of price, but we are very sensitive to valuations north, pre-money valuations north of 20 million, just because we're a seed to series A investor and we believe in the historic data for MedTech, which says your pre-monies are generally in the low, some, some are in the high single digits, some are in the low teens, but very rarely will we meet a MedTech company at the stage we're investing where evaluation supports anything north of 20 million. Uh, that's uh it's midwestern after my own heart there i mean there's a range it's 10 million dollar range that's all we're playing in we're not we're not really wiggling the too far out of that and just to be even more and this is no shade to uh well this was during the heady uh it was during the frothy days we would meet companies coming out of a very specific accelerator and their pre-money was always 20 million dollars <laughs> but it's a, it was a west coast accelerator that uh you know that's just uh, somebody <laughs> Somebody had this discussion with you and said, just go in at 20. That's where their cap is. <laughs> That's right. So, so you mentioned team and it sounds like, you know, team is um, obviously the, but we, we, let me back up at project MedTech, We always say it's team problem, then solution. If you got the right team and the right problem, the solution will find itself. If you have the wrong solution, but you got the right problem, the team will figure that out. Right. So, so it sounds like you're in the same wavelength as that, you know, focusing on the entrepreneurs you meet, you mentioned gray beer, but it's the seasoned expectations, right? They've been through it or they have the, the, the moxie to kind of figure it out or understand the game board that they're playing on. Uh, what other attributes you're kind of looking at to say as part of the team, maybe not the CEO or the founder, but the broader team as a whole, what else are you looking at with the team, uh, to kind of sway your opinion one way or another? Um, this is part the makeup of our partnership. Uh, we have a couple clinicians and, uh, hospital executive who actually ran a major hospital system in Ohio, University Health um, Systems. So we look a lot at the scientific advisory board or the clinical advisory board, different names. Uh, it's a, it's not just about credibility. It's about knowing kind of the basics of developing a med tech company and a scientific advisory board. I won't say it's always table stakes, but it's something that you should at least have a few informals early on. Um, obviously, uh, and I have a bias because I worked in QARA, so a really strong R&D lead who um, probably has obviously some really strong IP that they're conversant with or help develop. And if you're talking about going beyond the CEO, those are some key factors. We will invest in solo founder CEOs. Um, one thing that we um, sometimes come across is co-founders who are relatives. And we don't, there's a book that I'm going to recommend that all shows some data that when co-founders are related or married, <laughs> that's a risk factor, but we don't automatically uh, count you out for that. But those are some quick aspects of the extended team that get us excited. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because when we started Project MedTech and we were talking about, you know, our individuals that we know and who we know, I said, look, at the end of the day, whoever we hire, as long as we're willing to fire them, that's the only reason you should bring them in. Because if you have those more intimate relationships, it's tough to, you know, mix business and, and personal. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned the Medical Advisory Board, and I just want to re-highlight that. So I, 
one of our clients came to us originally and said, Hey, here's my pitch deck. Here's my advisory board, medical advisory board. And it was huge, bunch of docs on there, all in the same sector. But what I noticed was they were all at different institutions. And then they said, and they've also invested in my earlier round. And it's like, that to me is a huge, huge check mark in that you have docs that have already signed up to this and say, this is worth pursuing. And I'm going to invest in this as well. I mean, obviously there's um, arm's length things you need to maintain there. But at the end of the day, it's like that is, if you want a observation from the market to say who, if the clinicians would prefer your product over anything else, that's a pretty darn good sign, right? Yeah. So, I, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, no. That's, I was just going to say, yeah, that's to me, that's it, it, if I was sitting there on the investment side, I'd say that's a pretty, pretty, you know, good check mark for me to say, I want to take a deeper look at this. I couldn't agree uh, with you more. Um, there are some board members, advisors who stand out, just to add to what you said, where we just know them or there'll be two degrees of separation. So that's also a good thing. Uh, the obvious watch out is for bias based on um, thinking the people in your network are the smartest folks in the room, always. Uh, so there's always that bias that you have to try and manage against. But everything you said, I totally agree with. If if the advisors have doubled down and put their hard dollars in, that's really noteworthy. Yep. So let's. I want to move on to the the broader investment environment. It's been a hot topic for you know, a lot of our clients and I'm sure a lot of your portfolio companies as well as yourselves. And so um, for most investors I talk to, they're saying valuations are coming back to earth, which they're excited about. And for entrepreneurs, they think they're getting taken taken for a ride. But, you know, it's, there's some middle ground there. So we've seen a shift. I think the Carta data was just released uh, for 2023 first half. And obviously there's been a massive shift away from price rounds to avoid the valuation game. And so has that, has your I wouldn't say investment thesis, but your your terms of your rounds have those been adjusted since you tend to you could lead rounds, uh, or mm-hmm. or have you just uh, added some additional side letters or terms to kind of sweeten it up for you? Well, price is price, and quite candidly, <laughs> when we're drafting a term sheet, it starts with price, and then I won't say every other term is secondary, but that's the key term, and uh, we try and alert companies early on, you know, like any good negotiator, like this is the range we're playing in. Um, And we will go back and forth because quite, so here's the deal. Any CEO worth their salt can provide a set of data to make a case for why their company is worth pre-money $17 million. You know, they're pre-revenue, pre-510K, but they say these are all the reasons. And we could similarly provide data. I think a little bit of ground truth is when you go to trusted sources like Avamed or MDMA, and oh, by the way, you can be a member of those organizations for relatively uh, small dollar amounts and get pretty robust current data set. And Project MedTech is another example where you can get unbiased data. But to get to your point, pre-monies in the low teens or... um, high single digits is down to earth. And that's the area that we're playing in, particularly if you're pre 510k or pre revenue. And for you guys, I'm sure you're doing it like everybody else, which is the VC model of valuation, right? You figure out what you need to return and you work your way back. And as long as it meets that kind of ground truth. And you're like you said, like I've gone, I've done the financial models that are like, I need the valuation to be this. And 
darn tootin' if I Google that, I'm going to find it, right? So <laughs> there's data to meet every one of the numbers you want to hit. But at the end of the day, it's like, what are we really working with here? What's reality? Um, and I will tell you, yeah, 90% are in that eight, to, I'll call it 12 and a half range. Yeah. And then, I, and I just think a company needs to decide or probably had decided nine months ago that, am I, I mean, the key questions are, can I convince my prior investor to take a down or flat round? I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but I think when we get pushback, it's because some investor is annoyed or upset that they have to take a cram down. And then you just talk to the CEO, say, hey, here's where we're at. Do you think you can convince them? Do you want us to talk to your investor potentially, unless there's like a pre-existing relationship? But those are like the key questions. Um, and then if yep. the CEO can take a big gulp and do that, then we're good. And I, I find that most of the time when you're seeing a big leap in valuation or a disagreement in valuation it, between the seed and series A rounds is because their timeline is so aggressive. Mm. That's usually the biggest problem for that because they've tried to pinch everything together with, yeah, maybe we submitted and maybe the clearance pathway makes sense within six months, but you're trying to ramp up production, commercialization so aggressively that you need all that money so fast that you have to raise within that type time frame, And that's, you, you just don't have enough time to create value. And when you do that, you can't argue for a higher valuation. That's a great point. There's only with the classic, let's just say team of three to seven people raising a seed round. There's only so much you can do with, let's just give a nice meaty number, $5 million in 18 months, 12 to 18 months. So one, you don't want to take in more money because you don't want to get diluted too much. But two, you have to put that money to work. And it's almost like this funny dance we do because we know what's physically possible to be able to put to work in a certain amount of time based on having met with a lot of companies and having this knowledge. And even on the company side, they know they get quotes from, you know, vendors, the CROs, the regulatory and quality folks. They know what's reasonable. So it's a little bit of a dance. But ultimately, you can't be way out to what is reasonable in terms of window of time and capital to put to work. Yeah. And um, I always call it walk into the wall because there's entrepreneurs in their own right. They have a personality trait of they are they have to be confident. Right. And that confidence can sometimes go a little bit over. And so if they don't want to listen. So. We've had situations where, oh, what's going on with that client? Eh, they're walking into a wall. We're just going to let them go. They'll be back. And, and when they walk into the wall, they come back and say, that didn't work. It's like, yep, here's the other. And we've already kind of thought through the other pathway, which is, hey, maybe we're not going to go raise $5 million, But because the valuation is too high or we need it to be too high, let's go raise a million. Because what that's going to do is allow us to do all these things, get to the milestones we need in a reasonable time. We can do a bridge round if we have to or pre-A or pre-B round, whatever you want to call it. But ultimately, what we're doing there is we've got the valuation to where the investor wants to be. We've raised a limited amount of money to keep the dilution as low as possible. It's going to accomplish what we want to accomplish. It's It should not be going to salaries or rent, right? It should just be to driving the value. And then ultimately, when we hit that, we have a valuation we can go raise the bulk of that round for. Yeah. Now let's go do it that. And that's that's the different perspective. Sometimes entrepreneurs just think, I'm raising three rounds and that's it. No, you can slice and dice. Absolutely. You know? To be specific, uh, two companies I'm thinking of, one is going to end 2023 with two million is in two million in sales, multiple five ten Ks, and they are um, taking some more money in on a note 
to really beef up their story for the Series A. And it may be a small A in 2024. So that's the other thing. The other company is going to end 2023 with $3 million in sales. LDT know they're going to need to be 510K in the future, but they can generate money as they are generating money as an LDT. So they even have a stronger revenue story. They have a land and expand with some big pharma clients, but they're also, pro- oh, they're going to go out with a more traditional A. We'll see how both of them play out. Uh, but I am seeing one, our portfolio companies taking in uh, seed pluses to weather the, this macroeconomic environment and and or go out for a small Series A in 2024, something different than what they had planned, just like you said, to get to a meaningful milestone. Yeah. And it, it makes sense when you're in a downturn of climate like this and you want to avoid the valuation discussion. It's a very reasonable thing to do. And I don't think your investors would be uh, uh, apprehensive to an anti-dilution strategy. Mm-hmm. It makes all the sense in the world. Um, so that's great. So I want to move on to collaborations and networking. So for, for you know, you're out in LA, you're out in the West Coast, you, you seems like you're investing across the, the spectrum here in the United States. So um, co-investment, is that something you do quite a bit with other venture vehicles out there or other angel groups? We absolutely co-invest from organizations like Pasadena Angels to well-known VCs like Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, and uh, we're open to leading. We're doing more rounds that we're leading, but we always uh, have other people in the cap table in our rounds. And I'd like to get your opinion on the leading discussion because it's been tougher to find leads these days, obviously, because investment dollars, I would say the passive investment dollars have gone away because they've gone to low risk treasury bills, right? Or those things. So for um, rounds that we're not leading or there's no official lead with a a big check or setting the terms, but you have a lot of maybe 20% of the rounds been filled with a lot of angels. What's your thought pattern? Would that be something still of interest to Wavemaker? Because- Hey, there's traction in the round itself. Maybe there's not a specific or significant lead, but there's a lot of traction with the angels. Yeah, we will absolutely consider co-investing with angels. Um, there's some great angel sidecar funds where they can just double dip and maybe get that 20% up to 40%. Uh, and you didn't say it, but for better or for worse, in this environment, if we do choose to lead, we have more negotiating power. Uh, obviously, and we set the terms, and um, that's just the world in which we're playing in right now. But we we have no problem if it's a great opportunity. We have no problem co-investing with angels. And and when you lead, right? It's not just the deal terms and the price. Obviously, that's the major component. But there's other things we can add: side letters, board seats, observation rights. Is there a specific strategy WaveMaker likes to deploy without giving away the playbook? Well, we actually make sure we have an excellent person qualified to serve on the board. So for one of our most uh, recent investments, um, we it has to do with uh, women being adequately treated for menopause. And our board member is someone who's who has the domain expertise and clinical background to be an excellent board member. So we say, hey, you're just you're not going to get some investment banker or some McKinsey consultant to serve on your board. You're going to get someone who can actually give you sage advice from some dimension that is needed right now. Um, I'm serving on the board of a regulatory application platform. It is essentially a turbo tax for the FDA. And I've been doing this for 21 years. So 
I would not sit on the board of a. I probably would not sit on the board of a cardiovascular. Well, I worked in cardiovascular, but for some some subspecialty where I have no expertise, no value add, we don't we don't just do it just for ego. And that's a good way to bring it full circle here with uh, ending with documentation. Your your sweet spot. So, uh, you know, just to close it out, then we're on the thirty mar- minute mark. What's uh, what's a good piece? Or let's let's. I want to go with two more questions. But what's um, rapid evolution? MedTech's constantly changing. We've got a lot of uh, input on this. But where do you see the next big disruptive technology coming in MedTech? Whether it's a specific procedure or a process change or revenue generation for hospital systems, where is that? If it came across your desk, you're like, I'm investing in that, or I want to, I want to immediately look at that without diving deeper. Even though we have invested in women's health, we still think there's more opportunities. We've made more than just one token investment in women's health solutions. We still think that I still think there's opportunity there. Um, And uh, I I think I'll leave it at that. I won't, talk about the cliche AI and things of that nature. I'll just leave it to women's health. Still think there's opportunity. Love it. Love it. Um, all right. And then pearls of wisdom for an entrepreneur. Give uh, give your top tip of the day. <laughs> I would say uh, keep the main thing the main thing and uh, specifically think about a capital raise that can get you to a meaningful milestone, even if it's as little as 500K through some sort of friends and family or C plus or 1 million, if it can get you to some compelling meaningful milestone, adjust your appetite and go for that. Love that. Reasonability here. Um, All right, Kwame, give us a good business book or book you're reading that you would recommend to the crowd. My go-to, Dr. Norm Wasserman, The Founder's Dilemma. It's a bit of a thick read, but there are gems. You can flip to almost any page and it's actionable and practical and you can plug it into your day-to-day immediately. The Founder's Dilemma. I'm adding it to my list. Beautiful. Kwame, thank you so much. Thank you, Rich. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you need anything from us, you can contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. And for more information on Project MedTech, visit our website at www.projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.